0: We're going to be um, looking at the first ten verses here in just a moment. Uh, before we read it, though, just a reminder of of the Book of Revelation, especially if you're brand new, like if you just came today. And uh, we've been going through this book. We typically go through books of the Bible um, as a means of just of teaching all that the Bible says, and uh, it keeps us uh, keeps us accountable, and it's good for us. And so we're in the bu- in uh, chapter nineteen, but just. Uh, Revelation is a, an apocalyptic genre, which means that it's, it's symbolic in nature. And these, the symbolic things that we see in Revelation represent real things. Uh, that's maybe a simple way of putting it, that um, the symbols have meaning because they represent real things. And so Revelation as a whole is a book that, uh, just to remind you of kind of the flow of it, it's a book that gives us various angles of the same story. It's, it's this declaring different parts of the story of creation, uh, the fall into sin, um, redemption and restoration. So the whole picture of history, the whole story of the Bible uh, from beginning to the end uh, to the restoration of all things is being shared and told in various angles. And, it's, and so John, in one sense, zeroes in on a certain aspect of that story and particularly things pertaining to uh, the, the, the fulfillment of things. And so he zeroes in on different aspects of the same story. So if you felt like over the last however many weeks we've been going through this book, if you felt like um, it seems like we talked about this last week or two weeks ago, it seems like we were talking about that same thing. Um, it's because we were. Uh, we were we, we've really been doing the same themes over and over, but just with intensifying uh, perspectives and different angles of the same thing. And so if it feels repetitive, it feels that way when you're preparing it as well uh, as we speak about this book because that's what the nature of Revelation is. It's, it's just telling the story over and over again and zeroing in on something else so that we can see another picture, another part of redemption. And today uh, is no different. In chapter 19, we're going to see in, this, in this, these 10 verses, in one sense, we're going to see this unbelievable picture of rest and worship. It's the, the, the fulfillment the, of all things. It's like this climax in one sense. And you're going to, but wait a minute, there's more chapters left in the book. That's right. Because, again, it's telling the whole story, and it's giving us a picture of this, this one piece of the end. Uh, but it's going to tell it again in 20, and it's going to tell it again in 21 and 22. So just prepare yourself, right, for the different angles that it's going to take. All right, so here's how we're going to read the scripture today. Um, we're going to do this participatory here a little bit, all right? Does that sound right today? So, so I don't know about you, but today there happens to be a football game or two on, and there's a really good team playing today uh, called the Kansas City Chiefs. All right? <laughs> there are some Chiefs fans here. All right, that's good. <laughs> Yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. They, you know, they, they've been around a while. You know, they played in the second Super Bowl or something like that. But, you know, um, but I'm I'm just just imagine this for a moment. When you when when you it doesn't have to be sports. You can put yourself in something that you really enjoy watching. When when your team, you know, makes the. Comeback the greatest comeback which you're not going to do that today. They're just going to roll but I mean just imagine when when your team is doing that and they make like say the greatest comeback in all of NFL history and at the last seconds with time running off the clock uh, Mahone makes an unbelievable pass across his body over that way and and the guy scores in an unbelievable move what, what do we typically do when that happens right and we won the game right we we don't typically go well that's cool. Man, I should get up and get another soda. Right? We don't we don't do that, do we? If you're at a basketball game watching your kids or a baseball game and they, they make an unbelievable play, right? And they win the game. Like, what what do we do? We we jump up, right? We're excited and we we scream and we shout and we you know we we do all kinds of things. We we celebrate, right? Because this is unbelievable. What we've seen is so glorious and so amazing. In fact, in the Olympics, what is a word that is often plastered on the front of newspapers more than any other thing in our culture in the Olympics? It's the word glory. Do you know that? Plastered Olympic glory. It's used a lot during the Olympics because we see something that is absolutely breathtaking and it captures us and people want to shout glory. This is amazing, right? So, I've belabored it enough. So, in this passage, this is exactly what's going on. That's what's happening here. That they have seen something. John sees something so incredible, and all the saints in heaven have seen something that is so unbelievable, such an unbelievable and decisive victory on their behalf, that they have no other response except to jump up and say, Hallelujah! That's it. You awake now? So, many times as I read this, it's going to say hallelujah, and there's an exclamation point after it because it's emphatic in the Greek. It is is a strong, they are screaming it. In fact, it says they cried out. You ever heard somebody cry out, right? that's That's a moment where everything gets poured into it, and they scream it out. Hallelujah. This is so unbelievable, right? So, every time we get to the word hallelujah, when I'm reading, I want you, I'll give you a little cue, to scream hallelujah. Can we just practice a minute? Is that right? All right, so on my cue here, we're going to, we're going to, not just let loose. It's okay. Let loose, like make, make, make your throat hurt afterwards. Like, like let this baby go. Can you do that? All right. We, that's what you would do at a game, right? I've been talking all week. I've been at meetings since Tuesday in California. And I can't, I have no voice left today, because I've talked so much, so so let it out, like let your voice hurt, right? Okay, here we go, all right? All right, ready? Hallelujah! Hallelujah! All right, one more time, that was pretty good, wow, that's good. All right, one more time. Hallelujah! All right, all right, I think we're ready now. Let's stand as we read God's word. Chapter 19 of Revelation, first 10 verses, so when it gets to hallelujah, um, it I'm gonna, I'll give you the cue and uh, you you don't hold back, right? Because in heaven, they are not holding back, right? So don't hold back. All right. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute, who has conquered the earth with who has who has corrupted the earth with her immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah. "Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great." And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, I was a little weak. Let's not lose heart here. Let's not, let's not falter in, in the midst of this now. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. and I worshiped uh, at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you, your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let's say it one more time. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Man, help us to understand why why we would want to jump out of our seats and scream at the top of our lungs, hallelujah, which means to praise you. God, help us to see in this passage what John saw and what all the saints gathered in heaven saw that caused them as if they were at some sporting event, but something far greater than that. Cause them to scream and shout your praises. God, help us, I pray, to see it. Encourage us today with the beauty and the glory of this passage. Cause our hearts to worship you as we should. And we pray this in your name. Amen. You can be seated. I had a glorious thing happen to me this morning. I think it really probably is glorious, but we'll find out afterwards. So I've been in California. Got back last night at about eleven thirty, and this morning um, uh, I'm probably saying this just in case my whole message stinks today. Then then you'll give me sympathy. But uh, but but (laughs) so but my computer for some reason I pulled up my notes, and the file is saved, but the blank the sheet is blank. My notes are gone, so I was practicing and working on it in the airport last night, and it's gone. So, thank goodness we have God's Word in front of us, right? We're all right. So, um, but it did remind me of the reality of our lives, right? Um, Jesus said this incredible promise. I used to say this to every couple at their wedding, and I would share, like, some promises that God makes to us. You know, promises for his mercy, for forgiveness, and for, uh, he'll, he'll be with us, and he'll take care of us, and it'll be okay. All these wonderful promises that are all true in scripture, but then you get to John sixteen thirty three, and Jesus makes this wonderful promise that we don't necessarily like. He says, in this world, you will have trouble, right? Isn't that a great promise, right? It's like, yeah, thanks, all right, that's good. In this world, you will have trouble, In this world, you'll lose your sermon notes. In this world, things will go bad. Things will be, as John said at the beginning of the the book of Revelation, that you will find yourself in tribulation. Some of you maybe even this last week. Some of you maybe even sitting here this morning, there's a sense of like exhaustion and difficulties going through your mind and challenges because you have faced those challenges this week. Maybe it's just exhaustion because it's just been a long week whatever it might be, in this world you will have trouble. It will happen. Uh, If you're a young person here, you haven't had much trouble yet, but in this world you will have trouble. Because this world, as we saw last week, is a world that that is considered or called symbolically in Revelation, Babylon. And in the midst of Babylon, Babylon is considered this great seductive harlot a prostitute i know that's you know the bible's not completely pg is it because it says these things in very vivid language so that you will understand how serious it really is and we live in a world that is racked with trouble because of sin and brokenness and death and sorrow we we live in that and not only that but we live in a world that's called Babylon, that is seeking at every level of your life to seduce you into believing a whole lot of stuff. And in fact, the very things that we we could talk about this morning that you could be seduced by, you know, seduction, that word seduction is a word that's this very subtle way of drawing you away from one thing to something else. And it's subtle, meaning you don't know that it's happening. You think you do. But the things that you and I could describe this morning that are seeking to seduce you, to draw you away from what is truly praiseworthy and beautiful, the things that you and I know to mention, Nick mentioned some of those last week, those are not the things probably seducing you because you're aware of that. You see, temptation doesn't show up at your door and knock and say, hey, by the way, tomorrow I'm going to tempt you in such a way that that it's going to destroy your life. Like you don't get that little memo, do you? It slowly, over time, seduces you, lulls you to sleep, gets you to believe subtly little things about yourself and about the world, about your spouse, about your kids, about money, about stuff. It slowly and subtly seduces you until you fall asleep, and the moment you're not paying attention, which by the way is far more than you and I realize it, the moment we're not paying attention, wham, It jumps up. That's why it's called a prostitute or an adulteress, right? Literally, the word is talking a bit about someone who would have an affair. And if you know anything about that, I hope you don't, but if you do, and all of us probably do, it doesn't happen just like that. And no one wakes up and says, hey, I think I'll destroy my marriage today. That doesn't happen, right? It happens slowly. One decision, one one lie. One moment. Oh, it'll be okay. This isn't too bad. I can see that. It's not a problem. I'll be alright. I can overcome this. This doesn't control my life. I'm okay. Right? And pretty soon you find yourself in a situation and the whole world comes crashing down. Unbeknownst to you until it happens. That's what Jesus means. In this world, in Babylon, where you and I live, where this World system this Babylon is seeking at every turn to take your eyes off of that, which is truly beautiful and to put your eyes on things that are beautiful, but they are not of ultimate beauty. That's what the world that's what Babylon is seeking to do. That's the picture that we have here. But but what this passage is focused on is the second half of what Jesus said. He didn't just stop with in this world, you're going to have trouble. He said another beautiful promise to go with it. He said, but fear not, for I have overcome the world. That's a beautiful promise, isn't it? Fear not, children. I have overcome the world. That which is seeking to seduce you, not going to win. I have overcome her. She will not be victorious over you, over me, over God's people. That's what Revelation 19 is all about. God, in chapter 17 and 18, has revealed to John what we saw last week in this, in the fact that Babylon has fallen. That was the cry of the last chapters. Babylon, this world system that has sought to take you away from that which will truly satisfy your life, from that which is truly beautiful, that which has been constantly and right now is constantly trying to draw you away even as you said here this morning by the way you know babylon is alive and well right here in your mind as you're sitting here listening to this message and as i'm speaking it in my life right and so even now but but god allows john to see this complete picture of a day and a time and a way in which ultimately babylon is completely destroyed this can you um, you and i in fact we can't we cannot imagine a world in which there is no seduction we cannot imagine that you can't imagine a world in which you don't fight with people there's no vitriol there's 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 no temptations there's no greed there's no desiring for stuff or coveting someone else's things there's no political bickering right there's no there's none of that stuff there's no Fox and no CNNs, right? They're all gone, right? We, you, you and I cannot even fathom that kind of world where there's no problem. You don't wake up having to worry about one thing. This is what Revelation 21 is going to, in more color, give us a picture of, right? This time, the verse that you know very well, there'll be no more tears, no more weeping, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more suffering, none of that stuff. Why? Because Christ has overcome this world. He has removed completely and destroyed the harlot, the prostitute. And that's that's what he's going to describe here. And so that's why John, having seen in chapter 17 and 18, the destruction and the fall of Babylon, this world system seeking to draw you away from God, John then turns and says, I heard, like God shows him the true and proper response of God's complete and total victory over this world and the true and proper response is heaven God's people this great multitude which is the people of God gathered and they cry out what hallelujah right hallelujah simply means the first part of it hallelu is praise and yah the j-h-w that we transliterate that is actually the the shortened form of God's name Yahweh or God right? And so literally, it just means to praise God. And, and it's not just any kind of praise. See, the, the praise at the football game or the sporting event or the, the ballet thing or the gymnastics thing or simply looking at the Grand Canyon and you see, you see something that causes you to go, oh, Right? That is one kind of praise and one kind of awe, but this is, this is a type of praise and awe that is of ultimate value. This is saying those moments, those moments are not evil, by the way, right? Seeing, a, standing up and shouting when you see something beautiful in this world is not idolatrous worship, unless you are worshiping, worshiping it for the, the thing in, in and of itself, right? If you're ascribing ultimate worth to football, then you're going to have a miserable life. <laughs> Just saying. Because you'll get let down, right? But those moments are intended for us to see them, to celebrate, to jump up and shout, and then be pointed to something to go, there's even something that is far more valuable than that. It points us to that which is of ultimate beauty. To go, if the Grand Canyon is this breathtaking, the Bible say, hey, look at God. Look at your God and see how glorious and how wonderful He is. If, if this is breathtaking, guess what? He made this in a thousand more places just like it. And He made it for you to be reminded that he is, he is of infinite more worth than any of that stuff. And so the heavens cry out at this infinite God, who shows his salvation and his glory and his power in this moment in which he destroys the harlot. Babylon removes every barrier for the saints of God to know God fully, to know him completely, ultimately. You don't know that today, though. The Bible says today, where we sit in Babylon, we see dimly in a mirror. You just have a taste. But a day is coming like this day, in which you will see face to face. You, will, you and I will see fully, and we will taste it completely. And what we think is sweet now doesn't even compare to the sweetness of that. And that's why John gets this little taste, and then we get let in on this little picture that he gets. And so they cry out, hallelujah. And why, or why are they actually praising God? Not only he's destroyed Babylon, but this is salvation. He, they name these three things, salvation, and glory and power belong to our god the idea of salvation is it is to be rescued or actually preserved through something or rescued from something that's the definition of salvation the word salvation so there's there's this point in this text where there's where this is complete the being preserved through something and rescued out of something is complete and so that's why the praise here is even greater than even other places in the book of Revelation because it's come to fruition it's it's come to completion it is it is total and so he's saying here we have been preserved through the trials and the challenges and the seduction of this world we've been preserved that and we've been saved out of it and that salvation is now full and complete we're able to see it And so he says, not only that, but salvation and glory. Glory is is us seeing God for all that he is, which is known and seen in everything that he does. Which is fitting, because they've just seen from God a vision of exactly what God has done to save them and to preserve them, which is to keep his promise to completely wipe out that which draws us away from himself from that which is truly satisfying. And then he says, power, salvation and glory and power, total power, complete power, a God who simply speaks and things happen. That belongs to our God. I like how John writes that our God, not any God, not the God that you might come up with and decide in your mind or my mind, no, no, no. The God who has made himself known to us. The true God. And so why is this? Why is this hallelujah? Why is, it, why is he praising the salvation and glory and power that belong to our God? He gives us two purpose things here. Four. His judgments are true and just. Number one. God's judgments are true and just. In other words... God is the only one who rightly sees everything. And when he acts to judge something or someone, it is correct every time. This is why the scriptures say, Paul said, let God be true and let every man be a liar. Right? How many times have you been tempted, even this week possibly, to let God in on the secrets that you know that he may not know? Right? Right? We're tempted to somehow tell God what would be right and just in this situation or that situation. No, no, no. God's the one who sees correctly. We are the ones who are to look to him and have him inform us as to what is right and correct. You and I don't get what well, you can. You can actually instruct God at your own peril. You can do that. That's really crazy. It's like the watch saying to the watchmaker, hey, you don't know what you're talking about. Right? That, that seems ridiculous, right? That's why you chuckle. It, it, it's absurd. The same would be true with us, the mere creations of God, instructing the one who made us as to how things actually are. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. This is why the psalmist said God mocks and laughs and scoffs at such things as if, as if we could actually do that. God's judgments are true. What judgments are you talking about? Chapter 17 and 18, right? He has judged and meted out judgment on this world and his judgments are correct, absolutely accurate. And that's difficult for us because we have all, especially we have all kinds of modern sensitivities and, and we have ideas about what's politically correct or what's nice and what's good, right? And when we see the Bible talk about judging evil, even though we know it's evil, it's difficult for us. Right? We, we struggle with that because we don't know what God knows. And that's where we have to trust Him. We have to believe in Him. We were singing the song, like, make my heart believe in you, God. Let, let me see and know that Jesus is better, that God is correct. And it says also, for, for His judgments are true and just, for He has judged the great prostitute. Chapter 17 and 18 who has corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And then once more, they cried out, hallelujah, as if to put another stamp on it. One more, hallelujah. It says, and, and then it says, hallelujah, the smoke from her, that is the, the, the judgments of God, the wrath of God in destroying this great harlot, that is, sought to lead people away from God. In destroying her, the smoke goes up for her forever and ever. In other words, the judgment, the wrath of God towards all wickedness and evil is eternal. It never goes away. Because there's no way outside of Jesus to satisfy, to satisfy justice, right? There is no justice ultimately outside of Jesus. Because there's nothing in this world, not you or I or any other world system or king or kingdom, that could ever possibly pay the ultimate debt for our own rebellion against an ultimate God. Only an ultimate sacrifice could do that, and that's Jesus. And so outside of him, there's nothing left except eternal, complete and eternal judgment. And that's the picture here. And it might be strange for us, especially in 2019, to see the saints of God praising God for this eternal judgment. That seems strange to you? It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. But that's that's not because God's messed up, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? It's because my perception is not accurate, not God's. He sees it accurately, and he's allowed John to see accurately, and John and the saints of heaven rightfully respond with a hallelujah, praising. God, He says, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. That's a command, by the way. He's saying, in light of this, in light of how glorious God's salvation and glory and power is, in light of that, praise God. Rightfully give him the honor that he deserves. Praise him, both great and small. Put your trust in him. That's the first picture that we have. It's a picture of, of ultimate worship and praise to a God who has removed that which has sought to destroy our lives. Which by the way is good for us to know that. You see the benefit of this? Like why this is so good for the church because it's good for us to know in advance because we live in Babylon. Right this is happening to us right now. So living in Babylon he's saying, "Hey, here's a preview. Fear not. I have overcome." and I will overcome. I have overcome, I am overcoming, and I will ultimately overcome. Don't be afraid. You know, this is a great thing for us in these days, because of all the people on the earth, and you've heard me say this, I'm like a broken record with this, but I believe we need to be reminded. Of all the people on the planet, Christians ought to be the most calm and at peaceful people on the face of the earth right now. Everyone and everybody is freaking out right now, right? If you don't know that, just gotta watch the news. Doesn't even matter which one you turn on, right? Everyone is freak the world is is just exploding. You would think tomorrow we're not gonna be here. Like everything's done. Right? Everyone is in complete panic. But my question would be, in light of what you and I know, why are you? If you are panicking and freaking out about what's going on in the world, why are you freaking out? Because God has given us a picture in advance of the end of the game, right? So that we know we don't need to freak out. We have God. And he wins. So don't don't get yourself up in arms. And that doesn't mean don't be mad about evil. Man, be really mad about evil. Because that's what rightly helps us understand God's accurate uh, judgments, right? But there's a difference between that and total panic and fear, right? Fear that, oh man, everything's gonna fall apart. No, no, our God is in control. He has this. That's the first picture. The second picture is this. The second picture that he gets, he says, then I heard what seemed to be another voice of a great multitude, and again, we see this, Familiar thing we've seen throughout the scriptures, like the roar of many waters, the sound of mighty peals of thunder, which is often a picture of people in the presence of God, uh, these peals of thunder. It's this, this huge kind of loud moment, and they're crying out again, saying, hallelujah, praise the Lord our God, the, who, the almighty who reigns. So, so God is almighty. He's omnipotent. He, he is absolutely sovereign over all things here. He says, let us rejoice. So here's a a call for us to rejoice. Let us exalt and let us give him glory. But here, there's a different reason. Similar result, but different reason. He says, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Oh man. Now we have a picture of a wedding. And Really, this is like, there's not much spoken about this in the Bible, The actual marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage, the wedding of the Lamb, and then later on, he's talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is, this is really the most detail you get about that uh, in the Bible, but, but it's a significant thing. Because what you do get in the Bible is this picture of how marriage is a portrait of the relationship and even redemption of God and his church. That the relationship between God and his people is often described in the Bible, throughout the Bible, in marital type of terms. And in fact, even here, we could take this picture that they had in Old Testament Judaism and see that even the picture of how people got married was, is a picture of history unfolding. It's a picture, picture of, of redemption history, creation, fall, redemption, the whole thing, and restoration, this ultimate moment. And so marriage becomes this really important thing. Don't don't want you to take my word for it. Let me, jump, let me give you a couple passages just to whet your appetite here. In, in Isaiah 54, um, listen to the way Isaiah is instructed by God to describe his people. He says, For your Maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. Isn't that incredible? Your Maker, God, he's talking to the people of God, is your husband, and the Lord of hosts is his name Isaiah 61 he describes it again in 61 verse 10 and he says I will greatly rejoice in the Lord my soul will exalt in him for he has listen to the the similar language that we're going to see in Revelation for he for he has clothed me with the garments of his salvation he has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself I like that Decks himself, not like decks himself, you know, like, more deck yourself out, right? Like, in, you know, okay. All right. He says, decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. This is, the, this, is this beautiful picture of this relationship. You can go into Ezekiel, it talks about this. You can go into Mark chapter 2, come to Matthew 2. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, Corinthians has the same kind of language. It's, It's throughout the Bible. This is the picture that we're intended to see. The greatest earthly picture God has given us of his relationship with his church is marriage. It's your marriage relationship. That's this incredible picture. And so here we have this announcement. In fact, it's more of an anticipation of this wedding, the marriage of the Lamb. Now, I think... To understand this, we have to understand the, the customs of the way, that, the way a Jewish mind would have heard this and understood it. See, in the Old Testament, and in these days as well, in the New Testament, um, marriage went something like this. There was a betrothal. Um, it's similar to our, our idea of engagement, but not similar. <laughs> so, um, it's, it's like engagement, but it's with teeth, serious teeth. So you see, in, in ancient Jewish times, the betrothal period meant that the, hu- the, the bridegroom, or the, the husband, I should, or the dad, there we go, the father of the bride, I can't even get it right, the father of the bride would name a price for his daughter. I kind of like that idea, actually. <laughs> Except I have two sons, so I'd have to get enough money the first time from Grace to, anyway, pay the bride price. But... <laughs> They called it a dowry. It was a dowry. And so it was a serious contract that that you entered into. So serious. Remember Joseph, this guy named Mary and Joseph? And Joseph, when he found out that Mary was pregnant, it says he sought to divorce her quietly. But they weren't married, right? They were only betrothed to be married. But in that culture, the betrothal period in order to get out of that, you had to actually divorce this person. It was, a, it was, it was a, something that you entered into like our marriage. Like, it was, you were not getting out of this, right? And so they had this betrothal period, which is, could be most, most cases up to a year. There was a price paid a, the, set by the, the father of the bride. And the groom's dad, and he would pay this. And then they would go through a period of preparation. And... <laughs> I don't know if this is accurate, but I think, I think this is actually the way the picture works out. Can you imagine that one year? Because they were legally married, but they had none of the, the, the rights of a married couple. They lived apart, right? And so you can imagine this preparation time was a little bit of angst, right? This is my wife or my husband we are legally bound in this relationship, committed to one another. We're in a process of leading up to the wedding, but we don't have any of the blessings and the benefits of marriage. We have to remain faithful for that period of time. I'm, a, I'm guessing that was a little bit of tribulation. <laughs> right? You probably know what that's like, right? It's a little bit of tribulation there. Not just the remaining faithful, but just the wedding preparations these days could be called tribulation, right? If you make it through that tribulation, there's a reward, there's a marriage, there's a, there's a wedding that's coming at the end, right? Um, but this is the picture. They would, they would go through this preparation for a year, and then at the, at the appointed time, see, you pick, having the picture here of Jesus at the appointed time is gonna come for his bride. At the appointed time, the groom with his friends would process to the bride's house, and they would go to get her. And there would be a wedding that would happen in that moment, where they would be fully recognized and, and wed as one flesh, a couple. And then following that wedding, right? So the, the groom comes, he's wed to his bride, and then following that was the feast, and the feast in Jewish days. They make us look really wimpy. Like it was a serious deal. It lasted at minimum up to seven days long. Can you imagine that amount of food, right? I mean, it's a lot. They would would celebrate and celebrate and celebrate. It was a big, big deal. People were invited to this, and they they would enjoy this feast, and everyone loved it. In some small way, if you grew up like me in small town America, uh, this is the way weddings were in my town. Like, you didn't have to even be invited, actually. <laughs> so, if there was a wedding feast going on, everyone came. Like, we all gathered on Main Street. Now, don't get me wrong. There was not a whole lot of honoring of God that went on, but it was a big deal. But it was like a day, usually just an evening, right? they made a very big deal of this this wedding and this feast this is the picture of the people of god one day when when christ will come for his bride and he so we we are his right now we're united with him but in a sense this is like the betrothal period because one day he's going to come for us he's going to come for his bride and, and he is, it, when he comes, there's going to be this, it's a sense of this wedding where we see face-to-face, right? We've seen now dimly, right? We have this period of time where we, we don't see face-to-face, but one day when he comes, we will see face-to-face, and we will be with him in his presence, and it really will be happily ever after. It is the only wedding story that will ultimately and truly and fully, in every sense of the term, be happily ever after. It will be an eternal Marriage that will be so sweet that you and I cannot even fathom. And this is why they, they praised God so heartily for this day in which things were perfected. In which we tasted the fullness of God unlike we do now. And it says in verse 8, this beautiful picture. It was granted to her, to the bride, to clothe herself with fine linen and bright Bright and pure. So, this preparation period, what was the bride doing as she awaited for her groom to come? She was preparing herself, getting fixed up, right? Uh, You guys know about that, right? (laughs) And just adorning herself. And if you, I've had the privilege of seeing the front row of a lot of weddings, and uh, every bride is stunning, right? Stunning and I love those moments where, where the door is open and the groom is standing beside me and he begins to get nervous when he sees her come through the door and there's a sense of like, whoa, she's amazing. And I usually would ask at that moment, like, so are you nervous? Are you a little scared? And they would often be like, uh-huh. I'm like, good, because this is a really big deal and she's a really amazing person. It is a big deal, right? And so here's what's really cool about this. It tells us here that, that the fine linen, the adorning of the bride, this, this preparing herself, which he's speaking here of the church, is the righteous deeds of the saints. What is the adorning of God's church in the meantime while we wait for the, the groom to come? It's the righteous deeds that we do, right? Right? This is how we adorn ourselves. This is how the church looks beautiful. This is how the world will see the bride of Christ as a beautiful bride, is by our righteous deeds. I'm not just talking about any, I I love it in fact, he says in verse 8, these righteous deeds aren't aren't just good things that we do, they are things that God himself has granted us the ability to do, right? because he's put his spirit in us and he's given us the ability to go out and to represent him well, to to do good works, to serve your neighbor, to love your friends, to love your wife and your children and your husband and your your kids, to be the best employee or employer that has ever been in the community of Lacey. God has granted to you the ability until he comes or you die and go to him to adorn yourself with righteous deeds, doing good in the name of Jesus Christ. I think sometimes we have, we've failed to do that because we're so afraid of having good works be too front and center, right? Because we believe that you are not saved by doing righteous deeds, so don't hear that. You are not going to be a good Christian because you do good things, you are are a Christian and therefore you do good things. The Spirit of God has already saved you, already made you pure and spotless. The the Spirit of God is already purifying you and because the Spirit of God is at work in you, that's why we do righteous deeds, that's why they're called righteous deeds, right? Because there's another type of deed that you can do outside of Jesus and they are still good deeds, but Isaiah says they're filthy rags. They don't count for anything. They're done from selfish motivations. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying that as Christians, the way we live in Babylon, the way we keep ourselves during this betrothal period faithful is we be faithful and obedient to our God by adorning ourselves in good deeds. So go serve. Go love your neighbors. Go make meals for people. And just throw yourself to this community. Let them see. Let them see the church. Do good in the name of Jesus, in every way that he gives you possible. Every single day, every moment, in every situation, this is what the church does to prepare herself for that day when the wedding will come. And we will feast, not for seven days, but forever with our God. Amen? He finishes it off here, and then we're going to rightfully take communion. The, the angel says to him, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. <laughs> this is actually a really weird play on words. Because you're already the bride, right? But you see the play here? The bride is also the guest at this wedding. And that, that's, that's, that's an amazing little weird thing I thought about as I was looking at this passage. Invited to the marriage supper of the land. You are blessed to be invited to both be the bride and also participate in the ceremony and see it. And he says, he said to me, these are the true words of God and the only response that John could have is he fell down and he began to worship. But the angel stops him and says, whoa, 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 whoa. After all that we've just talked about here, don't you dare fall down and worship me. Worship God. That's the only true response. The response of hallelujah is the only right thing we can do in light of this. In light of the fact that our God has conquered and overcome Babylon, in light of the fact that we will one day, because of this conquering, we will be in his presence forever. We will, we will be wed to him. We will feast for eternity. He says, worship God for the testimony, for the testimony Of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I love that. The angel says, hey, you and I are the same in that sense. We hold to the testimony of Jesus, so worship God because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What is your testimony? What what does it mean to speak a prophetic word in a sense? Speak about Jesus every single day, every moment you get. Let Jesus be what people see in us as we adorn ourselves. The good works done in his name. So be encouraged, church. Be encouraged. John wants us to see this so that we will not be those who are freaking out. Go home confident that as you live in Babylon, God has granted to you the ability to do good works in the name of Jesus. He will make you faithful. So be faithful. Don't be seduced by this world. That's also the message here, right? In this betrothal period, don't be seduced away from the group. Don't let that happen. Look to God. Seek him continually and constantly. And that's what we do communion for every week. We come to the communion table, and it's meant to be a memorial. It's meant to be a reminder of what Christ has done so that we will not forget. And you say, how could we possibly forget? (laughs) But you know the answer to that, right? We do forget. We forget the significance of this tomorrow morning when we go to work and our boss is mad at us. All of a sudden, the reality of Jesus' presence in our life, out the door, right? And everything seems hopeless again. And so don't let that happen. Like, pour yourself and look to Christ, seek him, and communion is a way for us just to simply remind ourselves, this is what our Savior has done for us. He has conquered our enemy by death on the cross. He's removed the stain of sin, the separation between us by dying on the cross, being substituted in our place, absorbing that wrath, paying the penalty so that we can be free of sin, that we can be children of God. So, as we come to the table, let us just be reminded of this sacrifice that he's made for us, of the victory that we have because of Christ's death and burial. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much.